to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus, a literary publisher of artful and autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com or on Twitter and Instagram at autofocuslit. I am the publisher of Autofocus, Michael Wheaton. Today on the show, I talk with Shane Griffiths. Shane Griffiths is the author of four books, the novels Borrowed Horses and Scrapple, the story collection The Heart Keeps Faulty Time, and most recently, the essay collection The Sum of Her Parts. She teaches creative writing at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah, and serves on the editorial teams for Barrel House and American Short Fiction. All right, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Shane Griffiths. I've been thinking lately about how I'm just really a creature of habit in general. There's part of me that hates to admit that because it feels like a really boring um, thing to admit about oneself. But it's like I always get up in the morning and I have my cup of coffee and it's always one cup of coffee. And then I switch <laughs> to tea and it might be one cup of tea or it might be two, but never more than that. <laughs> um, it, it's... Uh, I definitely have my routines and I used to think, like I said, this is really a boring side of my personality, but I think also, um, you know, when it comes to writing, it is really helpful to just have the things that you're compelled to do every day. Um, and so, and I don't write every, every day, but most days of the week, especially most weekdays, I'm, I'm going to sit down at some point and either jot down some notes in a notebook or start writing something um, in my laptop, but, um, yeah. So outside of like the boring writing routines, um, you know, what, what kind of takes up a lot of your time other than that? Um, sure. Well, I know you're a parent, but yeah, um, I'm a parent. Know, so I've got so two I'm sure kids. that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Although it's weirdly less now because, um, my oldest child is 20 and my youngest is 16 and suddenly, you know, they seem to have their own lives and be like, especially, the youngest one is suddenly able to get places on his own. He doesn't have a driver's license yet, but he's close to it, and a lot of his friends do, um, and he's got a job. So the house is feeling really empty suddenly yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, compared to how it was. Uh, I still do my fair bit of chauffeuring, but uh, <laughs> but they, they definitely take care of themselves more. Um, so what do you do with all that time? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, like during the pandemic, I, I got myself a horse. <laughs> And that takes up the lion's share of every day. I spend a lot of time um, out at the barn. Plus, I work. And so, actually, of all the things, that definitely the job takes up most of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I teach at Weber State University. And right now I'm teaching summer school. So uh, teaching, it's a night course on on screenwriting. I kind of like the night classes because it lets the rest of the day be pretty open. I mean, I have my class prep, but... uh, but I can kind of decide what's going to happen at what point of the day. So tell me about this horse. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so where, where do you keep it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> do you I, have like a big old yard or something? I do not. Um, <laughs> I, but I do have a friend who's got a big old She's got kind of like a hobby farm mm-hmm. um, and several horses of her own. And so, uh, so I just pay her some money every month and she keeps the horse for me. And uh, she has a nice like riding arena. And, and so I go out there and... Uh, his his name is Larry. Um, he's <laughs> a great uh, horse name. Yeah, a, yeah, I agree. <laughs> great person name, point. also a great horse <laughs> name. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, he's he's a sweetheart. He is a he's a very anxious horse, so he he gets very jumpy. Um, and he's always certain something's gonna um, come get him and. Uh, uh, my friend is always saying, I'm waiting for him to figure it out, that everything's safe. And I'm like, you know, 
I, I, I think that anxiety comes from imagination. It's not about knowing things are safe. Like you could know things are safe, but it's always like, but what if something happened? And I, I, so I relate to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, and how long have you been writing? So I know we're going to talk about the essay book in, mm-hmm. in a little bit, and there's some stuff about writing in it. Yeah, but yeah. Tell me about writing in your life and how it came up and... It's, you know, I always feel weird talking about it because I feel like, um, like people who are into horses are super into horses and love to talk about it as ad nauseum. And I realized like at some point in my life that people who aren't into horses are really not into horses (laughs) and don't necessarily want to hear about it all the time, but I'm happy to talk about it. Well, I do uh, right now. That's (laughs) that's right. Um, yeah, my, uh, I, I really from the time I knew what a horse was, I wanted to ride a horse. And um, I am not from, like, my family was okay. We were middle class, you know, but but we're not, like, the stereotypical, like, rich, rich family where, you know, like, that people associate with horseback riding. Um, but my aunt had a house in the country in Pennsylvania, and she had a couple of horses. And she was the first one to sort of put me on a horse. And, uh, and I will say, like, my great-great-grandfather was uh, like he drove horses he's he he was he drove the last horse-driven fire truck in Pennsylvania in Philadelphia so that's his his claim to fame (laughs) um (laughs) but uh but anyways so I I feel like it runs in the family that there's this there's this kind of love of of horses but you know she put me on I remember like really early on you know trotting in a circle on her horse Nova this old quarter horse and uh, and I fell off and I was like uh-huh. devastated I was like I wanted to be a natural I wanted to be so yeah. good at this oh, no, um, but uh, but yeah she uh, she assured me that absolutely nobody was a natural and that the best in the world you know always had their times of of falling off and it's it's a great lesson to have you know that it's not <laughs> that the riders are the ones who get back on which yeah. I think um there's a, there's a lot about riding horses that feels like riding to me and that um, I mean they sound alike as well but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but that's definitely one of the areas as well where I just so did you read like a lot of books about horses when you were a kid? <laughs> I mean, I probably read my share, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I mean, Black Beauty and Misty of Chincoteague and Black Stallion and you know some of those books. But but I read, I read on the one hand fairly broadly, and yet I wasn't the super reader that I know mm-hmm. a lot of um, my friends are. Like I definitely did my share of television watching and yeah. playing outside, and you know I wasn't, I was not. Um, super bookish as a kid so um were you drawn to writing when you were younger though even though you weren't like self-described huge reader i mean obviously you read but yeah <clears throat> did you did you still like to write you know at yeah. that time i think um in some ways there was a long time where i was kind of in denial that i was a writer but mm-hmm. i just kept finding myself writing things and so um like in high school uh, my friends and i had this notebook uh, that we would pass around and just write random stuff in it. And it would just be like, whose locker was it in today? You know, but um, I remember as part of that notebook, I started like an advice column um, from Bertha, like that advice from Bertha Doggle Ripple was the name of it. And, and I would just, you know, write random stuff. But I think I like that idea of inhabiting a character. Um, but I think I also had writer habits and personality. Um, so I remember I had a pretty good walk from the bus stop to my parents' house. And 
Um, and so I'd be walking down this gravel road in Idaho, and I remember thinking, like, if this person passed me right now um, and they stopped to talk to me or to give me a ride the rest of the way home, this is the conversation we'd have in the car, and I'd be playing the whole conversation in my uh -huh. head. And yeah. uh, <laughs> did not think of that as, you know, writing because there were no pens or computers involved, but I was definitely... Um, I think I think it's 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 a habit that led directly into fiction writing. Yeah, <laughs> I, know, <laughs> I know I know that feeling and impulse for sure. Yeah. Um, so and then yeah and then you take it all the way through a PhD. So mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> when did you kind of decide you were going to pursue writing kind of academically? Like was it always kind of creative writing, or were there other kind of academic interests you had before? Yeah, writing? for um, both my undergraduate and graduate degrees, I started as just an English major, mm -hmm. and then switched into creative writing. And again, like I, I really feel like I, for so long I was like, oh, I'm not I'm not really a writer, and I mean. I remember an undergraduate <laughs> seeing this, like, there was one guy who was in all my fiction workshops, and he was just, like, compulsive. He was on, like, his, he was writing, like, his ninth fantasy novel, and he wrote for hours every day, and it just consumed him, and I was like, well, that's what writers look like. I'm something else, because I don't, I don't do that thing, and so... Um, when I first graduated, I went, I, I was a substitute teacher directly out of, um, out of undergrad, and I was like, oh, I kind of... I kind of like teaching, so I went back and got certified, and I taught uh, junior high for a year. Um, and actually, I love teaching junior high. I think the kids are, are fabulous. They're just so honest about who they are and and what they want out of life, and um, they're just they're super earnest in a way and awkward. And I I think I relate super hard to both the earnestness and the awkwardness, <laughs> and how the earnestness can lead to the awkwardness. Yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, at the end of that year, uh, we had district budget cuts, and there were something like seven or eight teachers you know, who were let go, and and I was the last person hired. So of course, mm -hmm. I was one of those who yeah. was going. And I thought, and at that point, I was I was super burned out. I was I had been um, the the job that I had taken. I I had taken this uh, this position where I was filling in um, for a, a person who was on. Uh, leave for for most of the day and then they'd given me like one section that went the whole year um, that was during her prep and then I was also substitute teaching for that so it's like doing all of this work and I think just working crazy hours I think I made nine thousand dollars maybe it was twelve thousand that <laughs> yeah. year I mean it was mm. it was it was bad yeah. um, and I was like what am I killing myself for this job for I'm gonna like I'm a smart person I could go do some not some like corporate job and make money and um, and I should maybe think about doing that. And so I, I actually um, uh, started writing letters to people in the horse industry. Uh, and I went to work for the U.S. equestrian team for a year in, in development. So I was basically writing letters saying, hey, you know, would you like to give us a lot of money? Because we would like to take a lot of money. Um, and uh, it's a job that actually uses a lot of creative writing skills because you're telling yeah. a story. Like the only way to get people to do the irrational thing of like opening up a checkbook and writing a enormous sum of money to you is to tell them a story of why it's important. Um, anyways, I did that for a year. And I realized that like, I, I hated it. Um, mm -hmm. the, like, aside from the creative outlet of writing those letters, which felt like a really slimy kind of sellout way to use your creative <laughs> skills, um, even though I believed in the cause, uh, right. you know, like I, I, I was just, I, I felt like I was around people who were 
um, just not interested in creativity at all. They didn't value uh, some of the things that I valued. And at the same time, my sister was in film school, uh, and she, she's gone on to be an independent uh, filmmaker, and so um, and now does a lot of directing for television as well. But uh, but yeah, and so uh, long story short, visiting her and her friends in film school, I was like, I have this is what I want, this is what mm-hmm. I need. I need to find a graduate program and get my ass back in school, and uh, and that's what I did. And uh, and so that's I ended up at University of Georgia and uh, didn't look back. Cool. Yeah. And again, started as an English literature person and like within the first semester, like uh, creative writing, please. <laughs> that's where <laughs> I should be. Yeah. And so um, when you were in the program, so I know you have a novel, Borrowed Horses, mm-hmm. so yes. the horses are back. Yeah, So for sure. um, was this something that you were you were doing in the program or something afterward? And and I know I know a little bit about <laughs> the background of that because the um, final essay in, in your essay collection, some of her parts, talks about that. But yeah, um, yeah I'd love to hear you um, just talk a little bit about all that <laughs> involving yeah. school and after school and the novel. Yeah. So, um, like, when I got my first, like, job out of undergraduate, I also got my first horse. And so all of these travels around from Idaho to New Jersey to Georgia, that, that horse came with me. Um, and uh, the, for, my, for my master's degree, I really steered clear of writing anything about horses. Again, this fear that like nobody's going to be interested in the thing that I'm interested in. So mm-hmm. I better write about any other topic but this. Um, and then I remember reading Ann Patchett's novel, Bel Canto, and I remember picking it up in the, in the bookstore and reading the description, and I was like, ah, it's about opera, and I don't know, opera's fine, but I don't think it's really something I'm going to be interested in, but I read the first page, and I was like, I immediately read the first page and went up to the counter and bought the book, and you know, read the rest of it, and I was just really fascinated by how she talked about opera and how interested she made me in that topic. And, and I remember thinking, like, really consciously, if she can do that for opera for me, um, I'm going to write about horses. And, you know, maybe somebody who's not interested in horses at all will still pick up the book and find something. If I can write about it well enough, maybe they can. Uh, so it's like a gauntlet thrown down. If I can write about it well enough, maybe somebody will be interested in this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that became my dissertation project for my Ph.D., um, and at the same time, my horse was retired, and I couldn't ride him, and so, um, and I definitely, like, I could barely afford to keep him in pasture board, so, uh, you know, it was, uh, all of, m- writing that novel became my outlet, like, it, it, it was, it was a way of riding when I could not afford to ride. Mm. And then, also, while you're writing the novel and working on the novel, you just become a mother, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, one thing you talk about in that in that essay, kind of jumping <laughs> jumping yeah. ahead to the mm-hmm. essay collection, is um, this feeling of guilt yes. um, while like trying to pursue your writing endeavors. You know, while while having children, small children um, particularly, mm-hmm. and also like this just kind of feeling of like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. And really trying to negotiate. You know, like what what is it worth? to do you know writing and um you know in the in the midst of you know this new life and responsibility and all the you know love and hardships frankly yeah (laughs) yeah that come with it so i was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about that feeling of like what the fuck am i doing right yeah um and you know if it's something that you still like grapple with you know even as your kids are older oh yeah um i met my husband in grad school uh 
we had not planned on starting a family, but um, guess what? We did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so <laughs> I was like, oh, surprise. Um, and so, uh, so all of a sudden I was like, well, I still want to do this thing. I still mm-hmm. want to get this degree. Um, but I definitely had many, many moments of, of just crisis of going like, what am I doing with my life? And, and, you know, this thing that I'm devoting all this time to is probably not going to pay off in any way whatsoever. And so, like, what is it really? What, why am I doing this really mm-hmm. was a constant um, question. And especially when it was like, well, there is my daughter and she actively needs me. And here I am, cl- like, clickety clacking away on this keyboard, trying to invent a world. And I'm so distracted um, that uh, I don't think I'm writing very well and yet Mm -hmm. you know so I'd like I I describe a moment where it really came to a head where it was like had her in the play saucer you know watching like a baby Mozart video trying to keep her like distracted and I'm like Mm -hmm. running over to her to be like hey baby you know (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and then running back to my keyboard to try and write a little bit more and I feel like I'm the shittiest mother and Mm -hmm. I'm also the shittiest writer and uh (laughs) It's that Ron Swanson, don't half-ass two things, right? Whole ass one thing. And, um, but it was impossible in that moment. And um, and so, it, like, it really felt like, oh, gosh, shoot. I need to make a decision here of what I'm doing. Um, and there were more than one. I remember, you know, at one point going, like, to my husband, I'm like, why am I doing this? Why don't we just, like, move to Oregon and become, like, grow organic vegetables or something? Mm-hmm. And he just looked at me, and he was like, anytime you want to, let's go. And I was like, oh, shit, yeah, this is my decision. <laughs> we are here because of me, <laughs> because I decided to do this thing, and I better not complain anymore <laughs> because, because it was, you know, everybody's, everybody's sacrificing so I can do this thing. Um, but, yeah, I just I remember sitting there thinking, like, basically, what does it mean to be a good mother? And I was like, if I walk away from graduate school right now um, and, and devote myself to being, like, full-time mom, then have I suggested to my daughter that when she reaches that same moment in her life that she has to make the same decision. And mm-hmm. I don't want that for her. Like, I viscerally did not want that yeah. for her. Um, and then I thought about, you know, my own mother who had gone back to school when I was, oh, probably four, like four to six, I think. She was finished her undergrad and then later went back to grad school. And, uh, and you know, we did know, we knew we were second to the grad school program at mm-hmm. the time. Um, and yet, like, that that was important for her. And, I, and like, it, when somebody models that for you, it's pretty powerful. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I can do the things that are important for me. Um, and, I, and so I thought in that moment, you know, I know every cultural message is telling me that the right thing to do is to toss aside grad school and to take care of my daughter. But I think... I suspect what actually is the better, you know, model for her is for me to stick this out and to see what I can do about it and to give her permission to do the same when mm. she's when she's full grown. So um, it's not a decision I imagine everybody would make, nor one that they necessarily should have made, uh, but it was without a doubt the right decision for me. And, yeah. and I think for her, like... Uh, every once in a while, I'll have a student <laughs> who says, like, "Oh, you know, mothers shouldn't work, or like, if you were if you were going to be a good mom, you should be home with your kids." And I'll be like, "You know what? That's that's a valid opinion for you to have, but my kids don't seem to share that opinion. They don't seem to feel like they they're independent kids who are capable of taking care of themselves, and they don't seem to have missed um, that. So I, I I think we 
you know, we may have overvalued how much a mother <laughs> means in terms of like having to be there all the time. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing to have friends who stood up and who helped, you know, when, when my husband had to teach and I had to get to class and, you know, they, they would take care of the baby for an hour yeah. so that we could, you know, like once a week, I, I could not have made it through graduate school without, um, some, some like really crucial friends who stood up for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's awesome. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so it, I think I mentioned it's called the sum of her parts, right? Mm-hmm. And it's essays, I guess, are largely about like womanhood in general and um, like yours in <laughs> particular yeah. in the yeah. context yeah. of male-dominated society. And I know a lot of the essays take or were written, I think, more 2016, 2017, 2018 mm-hmm. kind of comes up a lot. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit about like your life as you were writing them and kind of just, you know, years later had the essay collection you know, came together and I yeah. could have I could have it and read it. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing that seems to be true of a lot of my life is that um, I tend to have a not like a long project going at, at a certain like uh, Borrowed Horses, the first novel, and then uh, Scrapple, my second, um, and now it's I'm I'm writing a book. The working title is Mongol Derby. I I, I imagine that may change, but. Anyways, um, so I've got these long projects, and then in between the long projects, when it's like out to readers, or I'm you know trying to find an agent for it, or whatever, I'll start kind of fiddling around on smaller projects, um, either short stories or, or essays. And uh, some of these essays go back, like I think I think Bread is the oldest essay in the collection, and that one definitely goes back to grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of one the, the 2016 election really, um, really like I think for, <laughs> yeah. for me and for a lot of women um, and just a lot of people in this country really messed with um, with just my idea of what it meant to be a woman in this country and so um, and specifically when Trump said the line like when the, when the Access Hollywood tapes came out and we we heard Trump saying the his his piece about grab him by the pussy like the the famous, not now infamous quotation. Yeah. I was like, that's it. Like, there is no way this country can elect that man um, after that. Um, and then we did. <laughs> it it somehow like, helped. Wait. <laughs> like, wait. What? <laughs> I was like, what the hell? Um, that should have sunk any, like, in my lifetime, right. that would have sunk any campaign. Yeah. Um, but it didn't sink his. And um, and it was really hard to reconcile. Like when when I saw that election go south, and I think there's a lot of reasons um, that it did, but uh, uh, I just I just really could not let it go. <laughs> and then especially like seeing the whole lead up to the inauguration, and like churches, like black churches are getting burned, and instead mm. of like saying anything publicly um, to condemn the people doing those acts, he's just silent. Um, and I was like, that is unforgivable in my mind. And yet this is the man who's going to be our president, a man who doesn't value anybody but other white men. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think a lot of my, my essays from that period just come out of, like, obsessing about that uh, notion. And then really just looking at how it reverberates in small moments in my own life, uh, like... Um, you know, the first essay in the book is about a, a graduate student who um, who objected to my absence policy. He wanted to enroll in my class, but he thought my absence policy was too tough. And he talked about another female professor he'd had with an absence policy. And he, uh, you know, he was telling me like, oh, you know, it, 
I missed some classes because I was sick, and then I ended up failing her class, and I said, well, you're a cunt. And I just remember him telling me that story offhand, and I'm like, you don't know me at all. Mm -hmm. um, and why do you think it's okay to use that word? And so, um, you know, I really, you know, I did, I, as I do, I just I kind of like spiraled on that thought for a long time. And so the essay follows, you know, sort of like my thoughts about that student, the etymological history of the word, how, you know, I saw it fitting into the political state of the country at the time and, and just kind of, and also just like within my own department um, where I saw the lines breaking down um, because I had another colleague who had, um, much more serious issues with him than I did. Um, and those are her stories to write about, but um, like really a lot of interactions with him. And I just watched colleague after co like my male colleagues go like, oh, he seems fine to us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. well, yeah, you've got different equipment in your pants than we do. <laughs> and that seems to be affecting yeah. this situation oh, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I can tell you as a male teacher at a community college that the it's, so students who don't like present themselves as being complete assholes mm -hmm. i'll hear from another female instructor uh of an exchange between them and then i'll see it and i mean it's really eye-opening sometimes when i'm shown these kinds of like emails from like, males there's like no respect and like um just like an innate questioning of like their authority mm -hmm. or like and it and it just doesn't seem to happen <laughs> like with me and it, it yeah it's it's really uncomfortable yeah. um and off-putting but it's just so true um yeah. and i'm glad you brought up this essay because it's an incredible essay oh, and you. the analysis you do of like unpacking like what he said and how he said it and kind of unpacking what is underneath that and like the comp and like the different various complications of it, mm -hmm. um, and how he like kind of defends himself, where he's like, you know, I can mm -hmm. say this word because I'm a queer man, and we just say that in the community. And you take you know that into account too, and try to like really kind of unpack, yeah. you know, so much of it, yeah. and it's so layered um, and so interesting. And then, as you said, you kind of get into like etymology, and and like the essay like turns into an essay about like language yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, womanhood in society and then like our responsibilities um, as a teacher. Yeah. And it's such a great essay. And then <laughs> it has this postscript in it uh, yes. um, because I wasn't familiar of with this essay before I read the book. Uh -huh. And so the, the essay ends and then you go back and you talk about how after this essay came out, yeah. This guy actually reads it and then yeah. kind of like files a grievance. Yes. And then here you are kind of working through that and being like, I'm still going to put it in this essay. In the <laughs> first essay in this book, yeah. I'm still putting it in. Yeah. So I'd love to hear you walk through that a little bit. Um, you know, obviously I'm a, I, I know from <laughs> reading the <laughs> essay, but I wonder if you'd be willing to walk through a little bit of again and talk about, you know, this crazy thing that happens sure. after the essay comes. I'm sure you did not expect him to find oh, or no, read I it. Oh, yeah. no, I was shocked. I mean, I... When you write essays like it, or stories or poems for literary journals, I think most of us go through the assumption that like five people are going to read these things <laughs> in the world, and it's not like I mean we're hoping for more than that, but but right. like the the thought that this essay would ever reach him um, did not really cross my mind, um, and I think what must have happened was that um, when it got published, I had done what a lot of people do posted about it on social media hoping more people would read the essay um and i think i think that what must have happened was that some of the grad students uh, read at least the the part that was published on the indiana review 
website and then somebody must have mentioned it to him because mm -hmm. that's the only way I could imagine him coming across this essay. Uh, but yeah, it was like four years uh, after the, uh, now I need to calculate, is that three or four years? It was, it was a long time after the essay came out um, and suddenly, you know, uh, it, we're in the middle of the pandemic and I got a call from, or what I did, I got an email from the equal opportunity officer on a Friday night saying, call me as soon as possible. Um, and I guess he hadn't meant to send that until Monday, but, but when I opened my email on, you know, Saturday morning and I saw like, oh my God, like what on earth has happened that, that I'm being asked to call our equal opportunity officer. Um, and it turned out that, yeah, the, the student had, uh, had read the essay and objected to the essay and, and thought it was, uh, you know, basically um, defamatory. He thought he would be recognized. Yeah. and But didn't dispute that any of it was true. <laughs> no, no, did not dispute that any of it was true. Um, was, was, I, think it, I think it embarrassed him more than anything mm -hmm. else. Um, uh, and and he, he especially objected to the idea that he felt that he was characterized as a misogynist and he did not feel that he was. Um, although, like, I don't think he's wrong in saying that I characterized him as a misogynist because that's very much how I read the, mm -hmm. the commentary. Um, like when he was calling the, the other professor a cunt, it wasn't because, you know, he, it wasn't like playful, the way, right. you know, so his excuse like, oh, I'm, I'm a member of the queer community and so it's fine. Um, I was like, I have to say like part of me was like, how dare you? Um, because, <laughs> um, because I don't see us as like antagonistic to each other and I don't want to see us that way mm -hmm. um and yet you know you're you're using a word to slur another woman um and then trying to say oh it's not hateful it's, uh, it's like it's definitely hateful the way you just used it <laughs> so uh anyhow um long story short uh, everybody i think in the upper administration of my university ended up reading that essay i mean everybody's an overstatement but the dean had read it the legal team had read it the chairman of my department had read it i was like none of nobody would have read this essay if this you know uh, student hadn't complained, um, and I really like. I, I really wonder what he asked for uh, when he complained about the essay. Uh, and basically, the long and the short of it was that that you know that whole team read it and they talked about what should we do about this situation, and and they came to the conclusion that I actually hadn't said anything that was really defaming the student or identifying him all that much outside no. of like a few people who would have. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I was like a little bit more descriptive of what he looked like in the initial essay that I published. And so I toned that down for the book. Um, but I was like, the point was never to go after this student. The point was to think about uh, language and how we create meanings, both within small communities and with large within large communities. And also think about my own culpability and when I need to you know, have longer conversations, even when I'm tired and I just want to go home, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. like, is it, like, is this the moment where I really need to stand and explain to the student, like, you've upset me and I, I need to, to talk about why. And I know you probably didn't mean to, like, I don't think he was out really, I mean, I, I don't think he had that much intention. I think he was being really casual and, and a little thoughtless with his language use, but, uh, 
but maybe we just all need to be a little bit more thoughtful. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of sympathy, by the way, with people who are cavalier and thoughtless with their language because I, I am a... Yeah, as you mentioned in essay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing a Carrie Fisher interview once, and she said, uh, I think in my mouth, so I cannot lie. And I've never related to a statement more. Like, it, it <laughs> sort of, like, comes out as I'm thinking it. And uh, and sometimes I'll hear something I say and go, like, ooh, that was not how I wanted that to sound mm-hmm. or to come out. So... So yeah, yeah. I, I did. I did have a lot of sympathy for that. Yeah, and I can relate to the feeling of saying something stupid and listening back to it because I record and edit this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Luckily, most of the time I can squeeze it out. Sometimes the way it works, I can edit it out. I'm just like, well, I'm just gonna have to live with it. And <laughs> <laughs> if it was really bad or stupid, I'd really try to get it out. But for the most part, I've had to just live with how um, inarticulate I can be sometimes. Or how, like, I think I'm saying one thing. I listen back. I'm like, that's not even what I meant (laughs) to kind of communicate. Um, But it's funny you mentioned um, Carrie Fisher. (laughs) Mm Because my next question is about um, the essays kind of in the book that look at pop culture. And so, um, you know, you have the one about um, Leia. And you kind of focus on the the bikini one and how it, like, forces her into this, like, dichotomy of, like, first a virgin, now a whore. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a relatively short essay, but it's, like, really interesting um, and layered analysis to it. And, you know, and then there's, I think, longer essays there. Like, one that comes to my mind is, like, the essay about, like, the rock stars and uh, degrading women for, like, male approval. Mm -hmm. It's, like, Mm -hmm. looks at that documentary. Um, And then it's, like, interspersed with um, quotes from, like, the Kavanaugh hearings and stuff like that. And then there's, like, another documentary about, like, the Montley Crew one. So, anyway, you know, there's a a few of these kinds of essays in here. Um, And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, like, the process of writing these kinds of, like, pop culture analysis essays, Mm -hmm. you know, which to me are, like, really smart. And what I was wondering, like, as I was reading them is, like, how much do you work on kind of the analysis you're going to do beforehand? And then, like, how much do you discover in the process because i was like you know reading through them i was like i can't imagine just figuring this all (laughs) on the page but (laughs) like i also couldn't imagine holding this all in my head at once so there's got to be a little bit of balance there yeah so talk a little bit about that yeah no i'm sure i I think that's exactly right i mean um yeah each each one i think comes from something that i was like quietly obsessing on for years without necessarily being conscious of my obsession um So the Metallica documentary one, for example, which Mm -hmm. is the one that also talks about Kavanaugh, um, for years I had remembered watching, you know, this this video, um, and I couldn't remember exactly what it was from all these years later. But I was like, we watched something. Some some male friends of mine in college or high school or whenever it was. I just remembered being in a basement, and what I remembered was the interview with this roadie, and the roadie had said. Um, that all of these uh, women would come up to him um, and what he would do is take a drumstick. And, and what I remembered was he said, if they could take it to the logo, then, and then I couldn't remember what the other part was. And I was right. like, I thought, I was like, is that what they had to do to get backstage? Or you know, like, what was it? But I was like, still, I, I just remember um, one just being appalled, just being like, that's, like at first just being like what does that even mean and it was like how my male friends just started cackling that i was yeah. like oh it's exactly what i don't want it yeah. to mean is and you what were it what means. 19 i think something like that yeah i think yeah. 19 is probably uh when it when it happened and then um then yeah but, I, but it was the laughter that i really remembered and then when 
um, when the Kavanaugh hearings were happening and um, Christine Blasey Ford, right, uh, who was saying like that she couldn't, like that, that what she really stuck with her was the, the sound of the laughter um, and that that's what she couldn't erase from her memory. And then people were like, well, how come she can't be more specific about all the details? And, I, and like, I did, the parallel was just really striking me of, like, mm-hmm. I can't remember what the documentary was. Right. <laughs> you know, all I remember is this stinking roadie and the sound of my friends laughing. And so, you know, then I went on this, like, mission to find, like, what was it that I was looking at? Um, and then to write the story of that. And it ended up being a Metallica documentary, um, which I was just shocked that of all the, of all the bands at the time, <laughs> like they seem to be the mo- ones that were just like dudes about being dudes rather than about like you know let's let me show you how many women I can drape on me yeah. or, you know like whatever um and so and 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 the the roadies full thing was uh, you know I see if they can take it to the logo and if they can they get to keep the stick and I was like yeah, that's and it like, that's that's the prize <laughs> that's like... wow <laughs> but yeah so um so, yeah, so I think a part of it was mulling things over. Um, part of it was taking notes in my notebook as I was going. Uh, part of it, like you say, is, is discovering as you write. Um, sometimes, sometimes, often, actually, I feel like um, I'll get in these kind of, like, obsessive thoughts in my head. And if they just, like, I'll, I'll keep thinking, thinking, thinking about something. And then when I write that part down, it lets me go to the next stage of that thought. And so, you know, I might write a couple pages one day and then you know now I'm now I'm thinking and obsessing about something else and so um the writing it down lets me get to the to the next part or the mm-hmm. next thought um yeah and then you kind of just deal with what you wrote and then kind of think through that I guess that's where the layers come yeah and um the uh, the layout one was similar just realizing like we wanted so much to play. My friend Tommy had all the action figures. My sister and I didn't, but we would go to his house and play, and then we would fight over who got to be Leia. And it wasn't until, like, the new movies were coming out, and I was thinking about it one night, and I was like, she's the only woman in those entire... <laughs> like, we were fighting not yeah. because she was the coolest woman, but really because she was <laughs> the only one. I mean, unless you want to count, like, Aunt Beru or something, but I don't even... <laughs> did she have an action figure? Maybe she did, but... Um, <laughs> But there didn't seem to be a whole lot of women out there, and uh, and that seems to be a problem. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I also notice in the collection, you know, there's you know different lengths and styles. Like some of your essays, you know, are longer, and then use kind of section titles, and then those titles can then kind of recur and become threaded through, um, kind of like just as like signifiers of what kind of contents in the section, mm-hmm. you know. And then there's some where you're kind of stringing in these kind of clothes. Uh, quotes in the essay so I would like to hear you talk about some of these longer essays that have like a lot of different threads I mean even your shorter essays tend to have threads too not every single one but I'm interested in hearing you talk about kind of managing the longer pieces with more threads like how do you keep track of them (laughs) is it all (laughs) is it all kind of like um intuitive like you kind of just like end up somewhere you're like you know I think I'm going to bring this thread back or do you kind of have to create mechanisms to remind yourself the different things you're juggling? Yeah, I think a lot of it probably is mostly intuitive. And I'm trying to think, like, that sometimes I'll go into an essay knowing what I'm going to braid. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with structure in general, like, and, and really curious about this idea of the relationship between form and function and how, um, 
the contents shift and are shaped depending on the vessel that they're in. And I think like even that idea of like the camera lens, like defining uh, a space, you know, the, the way an essay can do the same thing. Uh, and so I think of like a longer essay, like the Sarah Winchester one, where it was like, I knew I wanted to write an essay about Sarah Winchester. The essay that I thought I was gonna write changed radically when I started researching her. And I realized that um, the all the mythology that kept being repeated was more marketing tool than it was reality. Like it didn't have a, a good foundation. And so um, that like, I, at first I was like, oh shoot, like <laughs> the whole essay I thought I was going to write is dead. Like it doesn't <laughs> exist. Um, and then as I, as I, you know, started getting more into it, I was like, oh, maybe, maybe actually the fact that the mythology isn't true is the point of, of the essay. Mm. So I knew I was going to write about that, but I also knew I wanted to write about um, gun violence and specifically to tie it in personally. And so um, I kept thinking about how, you know, as as a, you know, middle-class educated white woman, I am not supposed to be the person who's come up, like, you know, face-to-face with gun violence. And generally, I haven't that much, but, and yet, you know, it's like, oh, there was this kid on my bus who accidentally shot his brother um, and killed his brother. And there was my friend in high school who accidentally shot and killed his father in a hunting accident. Um, there was the kid in my, you know, 10th grade history class who showed me the handgun in his backpack. And then when I was in graduate school, one of, you know, my teachers, uh, like her husband was killed um, by, by another University of Georgia professor who had like basically gone on a homicidal rage after, you know, the, the, you know, in the wake of a divorce and, and feeling like watching his, his wife start her, her next phase of her life. And just, I, you know, I, was th- I just kept thinking, God, I should, like, if, if, if I've run across this much gun violence, like, what does that mean for the country as a whole? Um, right. So, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and really starting to think about that. And, and, you know, what does it mean that we're investing this widow, you know, with, the guilt of the nation's guns, like the Winchester mystery rifle, uh, like the 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 whole ideology of the Winchester mystery house is that she was so torn up with guilt over the deaths of of those killed by the Winchester rifle, um, to which she was the like heir um, that she started building and building and building. Yeah, and you know another thing that. Um, appears a lot in the collection and which we kind of mentioned a little bit is uh, etymology it it kind of recurs through in and so you know I think it obviously represents an innate interest (laughs) in language um, and how it relates to our physical world Um, you know I was wondering you know in terms of etymology is this something that is you're thinking about more you know because you're writing an essay and then you know you come across these instances in the essay where there's like a loaded word Mm-hmm. And and you're like, okay, I need to really look at this more. Or do you find yourself in your normal life, <laughs> like <laughs> looking into etymology a lot? Uh, so I was just wondering if it's kind of like a, a weird personal obsession or something that's kind of just the writing kind of calls you to do. Yeah, I think probably both is true. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. Um, so like I mentioned, my sister is a filmmaker, and 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 she does a fair bit of writing as well, like writing screenplays. And people used to ask us like. Yeah, my father was a chemist and my mother was a social worker. And they're like, how did that create writers? And I think it's almost like a perfect cocktail, honestly, because I think both of us got that analytical, you know, side of the brain that, that need to break things down that my father has, but also that deep human interest from my mother. And for me, like, 
I feel very lucky in that my undergraduate and my graduate degrees both required me to take some linguistics classes, which I think um, allowed me to, you know, at least some really rudimentary, (laughs) not at all like sophisticated tools for thinking about words and language and and how they evolve. And, and I think that's, that's part of where it, it shows up. And I probably do that a little bit in life and even more in essays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, your, your sister, is that, mm-hmm. um, who, what's her name? Her name is Megan, Megan Griffiths. I was just yeah. gonna ask if that was your sister. Yeah. Oddly enough, I just uh, interviewed, actually it's gonna come out very soon, interviewed David Shields and he co-wrote oh, nice. the movie that she just directed. We talked a little bit. <laughs> That's, um, a, that's that. amazing. Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. I just edited yeah. that. I knew she'd worked with him. The first person, <laughs> next person I talked to is you. Yeah. So I'm interested to, yeah, I am interested to hear a little bit about like your relationships through art. Like, do you, do you share, do you two like share work together or since there's such different arts, do you really keep them kind of separate? We do share work together. I've, I've, I've read and uh, commented on a lot of her screenplays, and she's read and commented on a lot of my novels. She, like, I, <laughs> really early on, I realized that um, that, that kind of, like, no-holds-barred sister, you know, I'm just going to tell you what I think and, and um, not sugarcoat it. Uh, attitude was maybe not the best thing for me to apply to reading her screenplays. I think the first <laughs> screenplay uh, that she wrote, I was way, way too hard on it. Um, and I, I, th- I think we still joke about it. I think she was like, man, you do like, I think she felt bruised after that. And yeah. I was like, oh, shoot, I never would have done that to anybody else in my life. So why did I do it to this person who I care about more than, I, and, and this went on to be her, you know, breakout Sundance film. So it was like, that's clearly funny. not, um, <laughs> not the best. Uh, I mean, hopefully something that I said was useful in the, in the reshaping, but, but her instincts were like right on the money there. And, and, um, and uh, I, I just, there was one character in particular, I just, di- I couldn't take him. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, I didn't like the character. And so I was like, oh my God, I just, I was like, I remember saying like, I hate Stu. And that's the, that's the comment that she was like, um, yeah, you told me you hated my character. And I was like, well, I didn't know if you wanted me to hate him. If you wanted <laughs> me to hate him, you got exactly the right response from me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so I've, I've, it was a good, um, you know, way back early on, you know, that moment of going like, oh, yeah, like, even your sister does not want every opinion you have the minute that you have it. (laughs) (laughs) And I think anybody else, like I said, I I would have been so much softer and gentler. Um, But yeah, we we do trade from time to time. And for a while, it felt like our our lives were having these like parallel moments. Like I think, um, I think maybe her film, uh, gosh, what was it? I think her film got into Sundance right around the time that mine found an agent or, or mm-hmm. you know, something like that. All of these little, like, oh, we both hit a milestone um, at around the same time. Um, now she's, like, much more successful <laughs> than me and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and younger to boot. So it's really, you know, <laughs> how dare she? That's what you get for that feedback, right? So <laughs> um, I know from the essay collection, and I think you also just kind of alluded to, is that you also work with screenplays and I think you mentioned earlier too that you teach um, screenplay so um, you know how much of that do you still do Um, and um, yeah talk a little bit about you know a time in your life when you were really (laughs) kind of going at the screenplay thing 
Yeah. Um, let's see. It was funny because I, I had decided, like, for a long time I had, I, there's an essay about this as well. I had wanted to see a screenplay about um, Boudicca, the, this, like, Celtic warrior queen, like, Iron Age warrior queen who had led the most successful revolt against the uh, Romans when they invade, when they were in Britain. And I was like, why isn't there a movie about her? Why do we get, like, Mel Gibson and, you know, Gladiator or, you know, like, all of these other, like, um, dude stories, but we don't want, like, we've got Braveheart, we've got Gladiator, but what we don't have is this, uh, this woman's story, and so I was like, I want somebody to make that movie, and then eventually I was like, maybe I just have to write that movie, <laughs> um, and so I've, I've taken a crack at writing that screenplay, I'm, I'm actually working on revising it right now, um, since I'm kind of like, uh, I've got a draft of a novel done, and again, like I said, I tend to work on things when, like, other projects, when I'm waiting, I'm waiting for, uh, for feedback from a few mm-hmm. readers right now, mm-hmm. so I'm working on the screenplay. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just super fascinated in her story. Um, I don't know if I have a lot of screenplays in me, and I think, like, really, unless I'm willing to, you know, pick up stakes and move to Los Angeles, it's probably um, not going to be, like, a huge thing that I do, but who knows? Like, if, if I could sell this movie, it would be awesome. Um, I don't actually expect that to happen, um, and it definitely... Like, I mean, it's going to, it would require the right person because it's, I mean, you can't make a historical Celtic Age drama with, <laughs> with like horses and spears and, you know, all of these <laughs> things. Like it's, it's, what I've got imagined is not a cheap movie, Yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, but hopefully it would be, it would be a cool movie. Yeah. All right. So you work in screenplays, you work in essay, you work <laughs> in novel. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure there's a pretty big difference in screenplay and and the other two but I wonder like in terms of prose writing like essay and the novel like when you're writing the different genres there like in terms of writing style does it feel different to you like do you feel like as a novelist your writing style is a little different than as an essayist or do you feel like they're pretty kind of consistent you know it's funny like I I I definitely feel like there's different tools that I use in in each of the different medium and um or media and uh and every time, like, every time I try a different genre, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I learned so much from, from trying out the genre. So, like, definitely trying out screenplays and screenwriting. It's like, oh, my gosh, I don't get to use any of the, like, that one's the most different from essay writing, right? Because mm-hmm. rather than yeah. being able to, like, go deep into the mind of, of me in the, in the case of an essay, um, it's like all of a sudden, like, nope, all you've got is action and dialogue and like how can that carry a story so that it's been really good for my fiction writing um but I also remember like early on when I was writing um Borrowed Horses I remember telling my major professor who's Judith Ortiz Kofer like at one point I was like hey I've got this um this idea I'm gonna put these like essay moments in the novel and she was like what are you talking about and I was like well you'll see the next chapter starts with one and you'll see and I had this like kind of bit about um northern idaho which is a landscape that was formed um in some part by the um what was it called like is it like is it lake missoula that was like supposed to be this massive prehistoric lake that took over like all of montana and then like in the ice age or something like that finally the the glaciers break down and there's massive flood where this huge you know prehistoric lake flows out to the pacific ocean um and they realized like um, after airplanes are invented, they're flying over the Northwest, and they're like, you know what? This looks like um, 
the ripples that you'd find at the bottom of a stream, but what kind of force, like what size of lake would it take to create ripples this big? Um, and then that's compounded by wind and like all of this stuff. So I was writing about, you know, all this stuff that I thought was just kind of cool and interesting. And, and I called it like the essay parts of the novel. And she wrote it and she was like, that's just a novel part of a novel. <laughs> like novels are allowed to do that too. And I was just like, oh, okay, but I thought novels were about characters. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, just realizing like, oh yeah, you can use lots of tools that you think are from one toolbox and apply them in another place. And people don't even you know, really see it as a different thing. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, th I think there is a lot of overlap. Yeah. And, you know, there's two uh, essays in the book that are kind of more about writing. Like one, you, I think we talked a little earlier about kind of writing and, and mm -hmm. writing. Yes, yeah. And like in that essay, there's um, a couple things, um, or two lines I wrote down mm -hmm. <laughs> to use as markers <laughs> to ask you something. And what one is, uh, I'm going to say them both, and we can talk, talk about both. One is, um, writing hurts when I write true. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one is that a writer must learn to trust their obsessions. Yeah. And I felt like those are two li lines that you can really pull out. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of interesting kind of craft advice. So yeah. I, yeah, I would love to just hear you talk a little bit more about this idea of like, how writing can hurt when you start hitting on those very true things to you. Yeah. And then also, you know, and I think we talked about this too earlier was, uh, you know, you learning to trust your obsessions and, and why a writer should not hide from those things. And right. Yeah. 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 Definitely a major thing for me is learning to trust that. Um, but yeah. Um, so the first one, you know, I think I've, I've actually thought about that line a lot since I wrote it. Um, and, and like, this is, this is a thing that, I do often where I'll like write something and I'll be like, is that actually, is that actually true? Or do <laughs> right. I just think that's true? Um, mm -hmm. And so writing hurts when I write true feels true to me. Um, and I think it is. And then I start thinking about, well, if that's true, why is that true? And how is that true? Mm -hmm. And so forth, um, which is exactly what you're asking me right now. <laughs> um, and so, um, but I think, uh, I think what it comes down to is a couple of things. I mean, I think one there are a lot of thoughts that um, I might like when I'm when I'm doing my you know normal obsessive day to day thinking I might try to you know avoid them or stop short of that thought and not even realize I'm stopping short of of having the thought um, and in writing it, you know it's like oh you got to push through to that to that thing that is maybe uncomfortable or that you don't want to admit um, is true so I think that's part of it but I think the other part and and maybe the thing that, <laughs> that is um, more hurtful and more tied up in ego is that often like when I'm trying to write something that feels really true I'm aware of how short my words fall of, mm. of capturing the full truth um, and it's like this deep disappointment and this <laughs> sense of failure mm -hmm. <laughs> like, oh, shoot, I have not done the thing that I set out to do um, that like it it can take me sort of like days of like walking around going like, oh, I've forgotten how to write and I don't mm -hmm. know how to do this. I'm not any good at it. And if I were, I'd be able to write this thing. Um, and I really have to push through that kind of like ego obsessive, like, why can't I do this thing that I want to do? Um, and start asking myself, well, like, why do you think the thing that you wrote isn't working? And if I can get to that thought almost immediately, I'll have like 10 answers for how I failed. And then once I have that list, I can like start addressing the things on the list and, and getting to a better version of the essay um, and so, or, or the story or the novel, you know, whatever it is. 
but uh, so I think that's that's part of it is that that like pushing through that sense of failure um, and then uh, the learning to trust your obsessions um, I think there is like I, I definitely have always had this sense of like the things that I care about are things that nobody else cares about <laughs> um, it's just like a recurring fear that I have that I'm not going to make the things as interesting as I want them to be um, and so I think trusting that if I can write it well enough that that interest will carry um, I think is is a part of things and then um, and then yeah I like um, I'm an editor at Barrel House and and Dave Housley there is fabulous for this idea of like you know keep it weird and and write the thing that makes you weird and and um, I, I think um, he saw the value in that probably way more clearly and earlier than than most writers do um, and I think I like he's I think that's what's fabulous about Dave Housley and and why so many of us just adore him um, but yeah that that sense of permission yeah so I know you mentioned okay you're working a little on the screenplay now and that you're waiting for feedback on something so tell yeah. me what you're waiting for feedback <laughs> on is it another novel it is it's a yeah it's a novel um, it's a about a woman who is going to try to ride in the world's longest toughest horse race that's how it's at least marketed and uh, and it's this like thousand kilometer horse race that occurs over the course of several days on nearly feral Mongolian ponies and they they kind of ride different 25 kilometer legs um, across across Mongolia trying to replicate Genghis Khan's sorry Genghis Khan's or Chinggis Khan's uh, Pony Express route um, and so that's kind of the front story of it but uh, but just before she she leaves for this journey, her uh, brother tries to commit suicide, and he fails, but it really throws her into, do I go? Um, and then also puts her in this kind of ex existential crisis moment where she's working through a lot of the uh, traumas of her own past as she's trying to ride this horse race. And um, it all kind of started, I, I heard some an interview with a woman who had done this horse race, and she had said that... Uh, you know, people were interviewing her going like, when are you going to go again? And she's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to do that again. And they said, well, why wouldn't you? And she said um, that when she was riding, she like there were moments of the race when she saw into the deepest parts of her soul, the deepest, darkest parts of her soul. And she did not like what she saw is what she said. And I was mm. like, well, if that's not a space for a novel, <laughs> to occur, yeah. then I don't know what is. So. <laughs> That was my conversation with Shane Griffiths. Go check out the sum of her parts, or if you prefer fiction, she's got a lot of that too. And make sure to check out our books too over at autofocuslit.com. We've got three of them out right now, and the fourth, Holly Pileski's Cleave, is on its way very soon. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.